Why do all clouds look like dragons? <laughs> Listen, I live at a gym and, or a beach where I'm looking at the water. I don't really pay much attention to the clouds. I, I can tell you a secret thing, but uh, I think it's I think it's like a psychological Rorschach thing. Mm-hmm. I don't see dragons when I see them. I used to see George Washington a lot. <laughs> wig, you see his wig? Yeah, in the back. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> and bears. I remember when I was a kid, always seeing bears up there. But I think have you been watching Game of Thrones again, Tom? <laughs> no, I just when I was out there, I saw um, a, a lot of dragons. I think once you see one dragon, they all look like dragons. It's just all confirmation bias. Like when uh, my wife was pregnant, she was like, "Everyone I know is pregnant now." I'm like, "No, it's only because you are pregnant. Now you see, you notice all of the pregnant people out there." You're describing the curriculum of my of my basketball world. Uh, there's, a, there's something we call the reticular activation center, which filters out everything but those that are threat or value stimuli to us. Otherwise, we kind of go, we get paralyzed the way a computer used to freeze up and it had too many functions open. And so, for example, I always, use the, I always tell players when you're driving the same route every day to practice, uh, and I'll say, you know, say, yeah, I take the same route. I say, okay, tell me the billboards you pass. And they couldn't tell me a single billboard. I said, okay, but if you're in the market for a Lexus, and there's a billboard for Alexis, you'll recognize that because it's valuable to you. Just like you think the light turned green 20 seconds ago, but really your brain was looking at it the whole time. It turned green and then you click back on. That's what it does. So my teaching is all about getting guys to recognize things of threat and value that he wouldn't normally recognize. So how do we read defenses? How do we read our teammates? These things are going all the time. You never saw it before. That's why we say college kids uh, play the game and pros read the game. There's a huge difference in how they're they're taking all that stimuli and processing it and reacting to it, which college kids don't even see these things. So that's why, for some reason, you either are scared of or really value dragons. <laughs> Coach, how do you do that? How do you teach a player to start to read these things as stimuli as opposed to just billboards that we don't care about? Yeah, so well, just I just did it today. We had a 7.30 uh, workout this morning with some guys. And so if you, you watch the finals, I know really closely, guys, every single possession when the Bucs were switching, Chris Paul was snake dribbling off the ball screen every single time, right? He was dragging out that switch and, and then forcing, in many cases, it was Lopez. Do you want to come out at me? I'm still 16, 15 feet away from the basket on the opposite elbow, or are you going to stay home? And, and Chris Paul was letting the play develop around him because he values all those time and space concepts. The college kid or the young pro just uses green and gets to where he wants to go and looks to shoot, whatever. But there's no rhythm, timing, context to it. Chris Paul has learned to appreciate all that space and time uh, construct that's going on. It's one of many, many examples. Another would be uh, uh, Kevin Durant has learned. Kevin Durant learned this, I think, for Oklahoma City. Watch him in the, in the Olympics. All he ever does is put his great big long arm in the air early. Early high-hand contested shots, uh, and you could look at second spectrum, more recent data. I haven't done it in a couple of years, but it automatically dictates a lower percentage. So, so Kevin Durant is always processing, I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Let me just get my paw up there. I'll stay low in case he drives. I'm just leaving it up there all the time. He's not trying to block the shot. If you throw it into his hand, he gets a block shot. He's just trying to make you think about it. That's a, that's a learned process thing where he appreciates it can have an impact if he has no chance to block the shot, whereas most other guys are doing way too late and the ball's already gone. I don't think Mark Jackson says a lot of super smart things, but he says hand down, man down. Like there's a reason for that. There, it's true that 
you get that hand up too late, it's too late. They've already got the clear look on it. You got to get it up early. Early high hand contest is what we call it. Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haberstrow. Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haberstrow. That's Amin Al Hassan. So, Coach, um, you, you talk about the college players play the game and then the pro players read the game. Uh, one of the big debates I've had in my head is whether Kate Cunningham what kind of prospect he is at the next level and a lot of early comps to Luka Doncic and I just watched Luka Doncic this morning playing with what I mean how many NBA players are on that Slovenia team coach yeah I mean I I understand your point (laughs) certainly not like Team USA which is nothing but NBA players uh if you Tom if you're going to try to argue that Kay Cunningham while very talented and certainly has a chance to be an all-star whatever but isn't in the same league as Luka I'm on your side because Luca is like LeBron James. We'll never see the likes of him again. Right. Because when I'm watching Luca and he gets like, I think something like 18 assists um, with this Slovenia team and he has a triple double. And the argument for Kate Cunningham only averaging three and a half assists at Oklahoma State is look at look at the teammates. Like he has no supporting cast. Like you try getting 10 assists on that, that roster. And my point is, man, if you're comparing this dude to Luca, and I don't think it's a fair comparison. Um, but I heard it ad nauseum during the draft process. Like you, they're just not even in the same stratosphere in terms of creators and and um, and distributors. And so I think it's just the flavor of the month that people look at Kate Cunningham. He's a big point guard. Oh, Luka Doncic, big point guard. And I just think it's um, I, I don't know what I didn't I didn't see what you wrote about Kate Cunningham or your your impressions of him. But I would say uh, he does not remind me. Of Luka Doncic, he reminds me more of a, I don't know, a Tracy McGrady in his best. He's just a slithery, tall, big ball handler who can shoot the heck out of the ball. No, Tracy McGrady's from here. The only thing those two guys have in common, they both have ears. Okay, <laughs> uh, I understand yeah. your point about size. size. Yeah, and I understand your point about size, and I think you're right that people are the flavor of the month thing. But I think the real reason why Tom they're comparing the two. It's because Luca dominates the game without being a very good athlete, at least by the standards we use, running jump and hot, fast and super quick and all that. Okay. And Kate Cunningham, while definitely a good athlete at six foot eight, isn't, you know, he's not at that elite level. And so those that wanted to make the argument, well, Kate has to go number one, which I did not make. I thought I had him third rated on our board. It's not like it's a bad place. Um, I had him behind Mobley and Barnes personally, uh, in terms of where I think they can, where I think they can get if all good things happen for them. Uh, if you want to argue that he's going to be worthy of number one pick, well, then you got to make the argument he's like Luca. I think he's more of Lonzo Ball, Jason Tatum. Like, I think he can get to be a primary ball handling type like Lonzo. I think he wants to score more than Lonzo ever did until more recently. Although, how do you really know when Lonzo played off the ball? But he's got Jason Tatum's side. Tatum isn't an amazing athlete. He's more explosive than Cade. But I think Cade at this age is much better off the dribble. Any Celtics fans will tell you how hard it was to watch Tatum his rookie season as a primary ball handler, but you wouldn't say that now. So I don't think he probably gets the Tatum's level. I do think there's a chance to be better than Lonzo, who I think is very good and has just been mis- misutilized for much of his career. See, the, Coach, the, the comp that I was making when I was watching, obviously I wasn't deep diving into college basketball while it was happening. It was kind of just playing catch-up during draft time. But me, me too. He reminded me of Sean Livingston, like a, a, a better yeah. scoring Sean Livingston. 
in terms of the the same level athleticism. Like Sean wasn't a bad athlete. He, he was a good athlete. He wasn't jump out the gym, but he was a good athlete. He had great size and then great passing instinct. And then, you know, I think Cade just is better at the same age at scoring the ball than Sean was. And this is obviously pre-knee explosion. Listen, I mean, I don't remember anymore. Was Sean Livingston not an elite athlete prior to the knee injury? I don't remember. He was good. He was, he just wasn't, he wasn't Russell oh, Westbrook. He wasn't Russell like, Westbrook, yeah. Yeah, he was like, he was a good, kind of like Kate. He's like a good athlete. Good athlete. He's a good athlete, yeah. Yep. And he guards. And he, and yep. he well, I, I made the comparison to Alonzo only in the sense that they're, they, they have similar size dimension types. But Kate's really willing to throw hit ahead passes. I was impressed with that. He, I don't think he's a very gifted passer. I think Barnes is a much more gifted passer. And I actually greatly value those kinds of players that can can lead players to bucket they wouldn't normally get. I don't know that Cade is that guy, but he's willing to move it up the floor, which I think will help him. Uh, I don't know that he has to be a point guard to be effective. I'm not sure ultimately that'll be his best position. He's certainly willing to fan. He, he, I thought Barnes was the most charismatic character. Again, I Mobley is my highest rated player. Cunningham really impressed me, guys, on draft night. Having not seen a single interview with him all year, and it's just an interview. So I recognize that doesn't necessarily mean everything. I found him to be uh, incredibly interesting and thoughtful. He's a thoughtful young man. Uh, you need to be thoughtful in this in this game. He's like that. We I know we had him on NBA radio. I listened to it. I heard it. He is that guy in terms of, you know, giving you answers that are, I, and, you know, it's, it's funny you said it's just an interview, but I, you just reminded me of Giannis in the finals being asked about the block he had on eight. Yeah. And his ability to clearly, not just articulate, but break it down step by step. He says, I'm up, I'm playing the pick and roll. What's his name? Uh, Paul's coming off. And I, he says, I felt, I felt Aiton roll. I didn't see him roll. I felt him roll. So he says, I take one step and then I go back and now I'm jumping and I know I'm too late because I took the wrong step. So because I'm too late, I can't go and try to contest the 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 dunk at the spot, I've got to shortcut it and go to the front of the rim. And just the way he's talking about all of this and all the things he's realizing in real time, that guy went, I'm too late. I went the wrong way. I need to get there. I can't get there. I've got to go here. I want to believe that there's something to that. Someone being able to process that information to a level where they can literally just sit down and walk you step by step through it. It's no different than LeBron saying, yeah, I remember that J.R. Smith bucket that he had at the 434 mark of the third quarter when we played him in the playoffs in game three. And is that the garden? Is that that basket over there? And he went up and under. Like, I think there's something to that in terms of greatness of being able to not only recall, but also like break it down to, to individual building blocks. If you guys watch any major golf tournaments, after every round, the, the player goes into the clubhouse and the first thing the player does almost always the first thing is they go through all 18 holes and they go, you know, driver, five iron wedge, uh, second hole, then say second hole, they just go through it. They're not looking at the scorecard. They know it. Well, maybe sometimes they're on the scorecard, but all they see is the, the par. They know what they used every single time. And so you're pouring on LeBron and that Giannis interview, Giannis even talked about, luckily it was the pass was just a little bit behind him. I wouldn't be able to make the play. Like that was a, a humble admission by him that I really appreciated. But like all these guys to do that, I mean, I, if I go out to have it nowadays, so my players are retired and, you know, they're in their 30s, 
And if we meet for a cocktail at, you know, 11 o'clock somewhere on the beach, um, I remember that game in Indiana where I faked, I faked for the handoff, went back to him, got an easy dunk, you know, in the third quarter of the February game on Jermaine O'Neal. But yeah, I remember those things too, but not always. They always do. And that's years later. If you talk about on the day after the game, they remember every play. They know the name of the play call. I don't think it's every player, but this goes back to being thoughtful, being mindful of this craft. Um, all the serious players know all that stuff. Yeah, they may not be as genius as Rondo and LeBron, which who I do think those guys are geniuses, but they're genius enough to be able to follow. Otherwise, they get lost. And it's not hard to recognize the guys that get lost, right? And I also think, just to finish the thought and connect to Team USA, if you're watching these games, we're seeing Zach Levine elevate himself, at least on the ball and off the ball defensively in a way that I don't remember seeing during the season. Now, it's easy when you don't have to score 25 points a game. Right? There's a lot more energy when you don't have to do everything and you got KD on your team. Uh, and Tatum and, and Holiday are playing amazing too. But I've always thought Zach processed the game slowly. Zach was very good at the me aspect of the game. I never thought he was great at the – I don't think he is great at the we aspect of the game. But I think it's coming. And so for Bulls fans, you, we can argue the DeRozan acquisition. That's a good sign. I think having Lonzo, which will allow him to think more me, which is what Zach's best at anyway, which is good. Zach is a really good me player. If he can also develop the Wii thing, they have to have that thing to be real contenders. Zach's got to be a Wii player and a me player, not just a me player. Yeah, they're hoping in Chicago that DeMar DeRozan is going to continue the, the Wii part of his game that he's advanced and developed in San Antonio under Greg Popovich. Now that he's going to Chicago and he's going to be in the backcourt with Zach Levine, with Kobe White, uh, with Alex Caruso. Um, that's a lot of that's a lot of ball handlers there. I mean, not that Caruso is going to be, you know dominating the ball but um let's let's talk about free agency here coach okay the lakers redid their roster 64 percent of their roster is going to be new only 35 or 36 percent of their roster is returning around anthony davis and lebron james they are going to have kendrick nunn kent Bazemore, trevor reza malik monk wayne ellington carmelo anthony and dwight howard how do you feel about that supporting cast Way better the last 24 hours than I did the first 24 free agency they, when they were collecting a very, very old team. Russell Westbrook, too. That guy. And Russ, yeah, I, I know. Uh, I thought that uh, Henry Abbott wrote a great piece the other day where we just really went into how rare it is for guys 33 and over to be elite players. Uh, and so take, if you take away the equation of what are the, what's the probability Davis is healthy all year, or at least enough of the year, LeBron and Russ, take that away. I, I think the Lakers have they got to be thrilled with some of those young guys that they got. Malik came around this year. Uh, that'll be helpful. Uh, they have an interesting mix, guys, of players last year who were very good on offense but bad on defense. Very good on defense but uh, bad on offense. Into a culture and system for two years in a row where they've been, they were, I think they were third in defense two years ago, number one last year. Uh, Vogel clearly has got them really locked in defensively. Davis and LeBron have, have talked about it over these last couple of years. So I think they feel like our culture will build up the, our, our good offensive players that struggled to guard last year. And then our offense needs the infusion of these talented offensive players who can't really guard in previous years anyway. And I, I, I had them off my contender list after the Russ acquisition. They're back on now. How healthy they can be is something that I'm just not going to try to guess in early August. It doesn't look super promising, but it's not like Davis is 42. 
You know, he's 28. It's a concern, but I like, they have enough young guys with LeBron and Davis and, and then we can talk about the rest thing, you know, separately. Are you surprised that guys like Malik Monk and Kendrick Nunn got out of their restricted free agencies as easily as they did and got to sign for deep discounts? Surprise is a great word. Yeah, I guess I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, do you, let me ask you guys this. You follow the game as closely as I do. Don't you think what Reggie Jackson did, which we don't know yet. I don't think he's got a contract yet. No, he doesn't. Right, he hasn't signed yet, has he? As of this taping, no. On Thursday morning, he still hasn't. So don't you think that some guys are thinking, well, I'm going to pull a Reggie Jackson. As if that's, that's not a sound strategy. I don't want to be sarcastic. That isn't the soundest of strategies to pull a Reggie Jackson. Nonetheless, it's, it players all think that they're Reggie Jackson. They think they can score if they get the chance. And I think they, the Lakers are likely to make the finals. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think they are likely. I think it's possible. So I think they want to roll the dice on themselves that way. For me, I say Reggie Jackson pulled a Reggie Jackson because he had $35 million in the bank. I agree. Like, he's, he's, all, he's set. Kendrick Nunn has been on a rookie deal for two years, right? Uh, and Malik Monk was on a modest rookie scale deal that was lottery, but not not like a top five pick money. So, I, I mean, I guess we should be applauding them to say, hey, I know I have a limited window for livelihood for my entire lifetime and the lifetime of my children and, you know, what other family members around me. Uh, but I'm going to take this leap of faith to think that being part of something special might bring further riches down the line or maybe just the fulfillment of saying I was on a championship team. But, I, like, I was staggered. I said, guys like that, you know, you go make your money. And then when it doesn't work out five, six years down the line, you can start thinking about, you know, the discount, the discount bargain bin. I can honestly say I've never had a player tell me he would place a title over the money until very, very late in their career. Until they've made the money. And even then, I heard you, I mean, today, talking about your friends in New Orleans and the whole Chris Paul situation. Because you're, you're not wrong. We can argue whether or not he's worth that money separately. But your point was, if that's your target, well, then blow it out of the water so they can't match. I heard your argument. It was great, you and Zach. Um, and, and the point is, to our, to our discussion here, you might have been right. So Chris Paul, knowing he's not going to championship in New Orleans as currently constructed, although it was I have fun to play with, I don't think we think they're going to win the championship but all that bread, right, all that money still appeals to human beings that have a lot of it in the bank. And I understand it. It's okay to be motivated that way. Why, why should they not be motivated? Everyone else is. So I, I don't disagree. I think that to chase their title or a chance at a title, if that's your ultimate goal, I think it's a mistake if those young guys' careers. But if you're thinking Reggie got himself a lot more money because he played so well in the playoffs, now again, that happened because Kawhi was hurt. Kawhi doesn't go down. Reggie Jackson isn't doing those things, I wouldn't think, and probably isn't worth whatever he's going to sign for. So it's a, it's a very risky move, and you're hoping LeBron and Davis are healthy come springtime. For the people wondering, uh, we're reacting off of Brian Winhurst on the Hoop Collective podcast uh, basically said that New Orleans, we'd heard rumors of New Orleans making a strong pitch for a max-type player, and that's why they were clearing all that space, and it turns out it was Chris Paul, and they made a $100 million offer. And I guess that's why the Suns came with a fourth year with that partial guarantee to Chris Paul to kind of take their offer over the top. But the, the reality is, yeah, I was like, look, if you're going to go after Chris Paul, you've got to make it a number that makes Phoenix uncomfortable. 
right? And and like Coach said, forget about whether he's going to be worth it in three or four years or whatever. You're looking at a guy who can move your program forward significantly, particularly with, you know, two building blocks of Zion and, and Brandon Ingram, which is a lot, I mean, at this day, at the same stage, it's a lot better than what Phoenix was working with. It's better than most teams are dealing with. Because Phoenix had Devin Booker in the, in the same situation a year ago. We like Devin Booker. Everyone had question marks about DeAndre Ayton. Right. Uh, and, and Chris Paul did, did an amazing job as far as helping him. And obviously, part of that is uh, DeAndre Ayton had a, had a child. And that helps really speed up your maturity a little bit and puts yeah. things in perspective, take things seriously. But, like... There's a world where Chris Paul doesn't get traded to the Suns, and DeAndre Ayton is a guy that we like, but is never really one that we think of as can be relied upon. I want to know what you guys think about all of these deals. When we're talking about Kendrick Nunn and um, and Malik Monk taking these basic, basically bargain deals to go play with LeBron and chase a championship, or at least develop kind of like what you said about DeAndre Ayton with next to Chris Paul and reach heights that they might not have done so in a you know a bottom dwelling team, but get your money. I mean, you look at the top, the most bargain contracts so far in the in the NBA, and I did this. I compared the Profit X uh, contracts uh, projection. And John Hollinger's projection and and try to figure out what are the best deals, the best bargain deals, team-friendly deals. And they're all on the contenders. All of them. I mean, look at Bobby Portis taking $4.5 million a year over a two-year deal to go back to Milwaukee. Look at Andre Drummond. And we can talk about Andre Drummond and what he what he makes sense for a contender as a as a um a starter, but as a backup. As a backup of that minimum deal, and then you look at uh, Blake Griffin, Bruce Brown, uh, Jeff Green. These guys, I feel like they could have gotten more money elsewhere, but they're wanting to be in that situation where they can um, chase a championship. And man, that whole idea about betting on yourself, that's a risky gamble for some of these youngsters. Andre Andre Drummond is at a point in his career where he has to rehabilitate his his value around the league. Maybe he does that in Philly, but that was a surprising deal for me. What do, what say you, Coach? Andre Drummond and his fit next to, or I guess I should say, behind Joel and B. Well, from Philly's perspective, it's glorious. He's he's good. He's a he's a good player. I I, I don't think any of us think he's great. He's a good solid player. MB cannot be counted on for 82 games. And you should not be playing him 32 minutes a game. You should be down to probably 28 to 30. Uh, and, and you can pick and choose because they're going to smash some teams. They're loaded. So when they're smashing a bad team, play MB less. Who cares about his, his stats? Although MB might because he wants to win MVP. And when I guess the better teams play him a little bit more, so can watch out the 28 minutes. So MB gets all of those minutes and those starts when MB's out. I mean, Drummond gets those minutes. Great. That's good for Philly. It was surprising to me that Drummond uh, couldn't couldn't merit a starting spot anywhere. That seemed that seemed weird to me. Um, but again, good for Philly. Uh, and I think that they're. Uh, we remember just a couple years ago, they destroyed the Raptors when Embiid was on the court and got smashed when he was off. There's no way Daryl Morey forgot that. What does he ever forget? So he wasn't there anyway, but he sort of remembers it. So there was no way they were, they were going to season not having some protection when Embiid wasn't in the game. The bigger question is, how fast are they trading Simmons? Are you surprised, Coach, at how quick that is, the tide has changed on Simmons? I mean, I get it. 
the, the way they went out in the playoffs wasn't ideal. It was it's a pretty embarrassing moment. But I, I'm just I'm a little staggered by the rapidity that they're ready to just quit on this based on a guy who is 25 years old, perennial all defense, perhaps the most versatile, best defensive player that we have in this league. One of the best passers is uh, his assist led to more threes than any other player in the league. I mean, there's a lot to love, not like a lot to love about Ben Simmons. And yes, there are a couple of things that are irritating flaws that need to get better. But I'm staggered at how quickly this is like, it's not going to work. Get rid of them. Listen, I, I will admit that I am the, one of the least knowledgeable men or women covering the NBA uh, off the court. I don't really pay attention, guys. I, I, I'm just an old man now. I just try to see what's happening between the lines. Typically, I do try to keep, I listen to you guys all the time. I try to stay caught up, but it's too much for my tiny little brain. Beyond the fact that I'm focused on the course so much, you're around pretty much. But I think I heard just today, and it might have been on your show, I mean, because I listened to a few shows. I was working out down at 7 this morning. Someone was talking about how the Simmons camp is the one saying we're not going back. Now, they might be saying this overtly. Alleged, reportedly, I should say. There's only one reporter I saw that said it, and he's a, not, not one of the traditional newsbreakers around these types of things. But he said that the Simmons camp is – Simmons himself is not – communicating with the team anymore and has been instructed the six have been instructed to do everything through rich paul that's the report so there you go so who really quit on whom because i think i think they know daryl i i there's an interesting contradiction in free agency where without question uh simmons was a part of deals trade deals but also i can guarantee you without question Doc Rivers was trying to convince free agents to come because they have Ben Simmons on their team. Now, and so when I would speak to some of those players or the representatives about what do you think, and I would say, well, Doc is just trying to get you to sign, man. Like, I don't think he really thinks Ben's going to be there, or maybe he doesn't want to know the other stuff. He, he, I, I know coaches, they have a relationship with their players, they just try to leave it at that. They don't try to do the other stuff. Doc already tried some of that as GM, too. So I'm just going to coach my guys up as far as I know. Ben's on my team. What you said to me is exactly right. He's a tremendous player with some huge flaws and some mental issues to go with that. He wouldn't be the first guy that overcame some mental uh, incapacities as it relates to on-court play. LeBron James melted down against the Mavericks. I was there. I had I had dinner before. Me, Henry Atten, I had dinner with Roland Beach. Remember Roland? Who was yes, working I remember for, him. He, yeah, he was working for the Mavs. We had dinner at that cool sushi place in the Epic Hotel, it was, and he was very confident they were going to win. And I, after dinner, I said to Henry, like, I think Roland's a super smart guy, but he's fucking whacked out of his mind. What are you, what are, what is he, how is he so confident? Well, yeah, I guess he felt like they were to do something to get LeBron's head. Well, meanwhile, LeBron became maybe the best of all time, right? He wasn't at that point. So Ben Simmons could outgrow this. I think you're right. I mean, I, I made a living off this, helping guys get past certain issues that they have, but it seems like the, t- the, the, the team Simmons feels like we're not going to get healthy, whatever that means, however you want to take it, here in Philadelphia, where they're happy to snowball Santa Claus, right? <laughs> we're going to go somewhere else. My issue here is that Daryl Morey has to recognize that he's trading Ben Simmons when his trade value is lowest as it's been maybe what, in the last two, three years? 
I mean, I'm trying to imagine a place when Ben Simmons um, stock has been lower than it is right now. And this is business 101. You buy low and sell high. And so for him, this has got to be tough is that he has to build up his trade value enough to get past the hole he didn't shoot in the fourth quarter, past the hole he's passing up a uh, a wide open dunk because he's afraid to get to the free throw line. He's, he's He has to get past there. He can't, there's nothing Daryl Morey can do right now to bump up his trade value enough to get a quote unquote fair return on Ben Simmons because everyone in the, in the league is operating under the belief of, did you just see him crater in the playoffs just now? I'm not going to pay. I'm not going to give you that, you know, four draft picks and three pick swaps. And everyone's seeing that this game of chicken is not working out in Daryl Morey's favor so far. I mean, tomorrow he could sign a deal that's going to be ridiculous for for Ben Simmons. But his trade value is so low right now. It is uh it's gotta be killing Daryl Morey. Like he just gets this job a year later and now he has this superstar who you know, in a year's time, if he gets change of scenery, that's the real problem. Is if he goes to a new situation, whether it's Portland or whether it's Golden State, and he just says, you know what, grass is greener on the other side. I'm going to tackle these mental issues or these um these these things, these obstacles that are these yips and actually deal with this because I'm in a new situation. And that's got to be just in the back of Daryl Morey's head is that I can't just take any deal. But then again, are you really going to play Ben Simmons next to Andre Drummond, Joel Embiid? Like that can't work. I spoke to a team president on draft day, Tom, who at the morning of the draft and uh, he was reading me some, I mean, I'm not going to say any names, but I'm just telling you, he was reading me off what Daryl was asking for. And I'll, I'll just say this. In addition to, and it's possible this guy was joking, but he said, he named all these names that he wanted from his team. And then he said, and he wants Shaquille O'Neal too. <laughs> so his point was like, he wants things I do not have and would never give up. But that's, you guys know, that's how Daryl operates. That's smart, right? Uh, uh, in negotiation, he's not going to give you an inch. But, he, you know, I think in his mind, he would love for Ben Simmons and the team camp there to say, hey, we'll go back to Philly. That'd be fine. So that he can let this play out. Maybe Ben has, I mean, imagine if Ben's November player of the month, which is certainly possible. He is a very, very talented player, right? On both ends. And then trade value goes up and maybe makes a free throws in a couple of games, trade him the next day. That's the best play for Daryl. But if Simmons won't even come, um, it's an issue. Man, it's it's tough. It's tough. And, and this is the tough part about this is that we really don't know who's responsible for saying what, right? The conversation, whether it's coming from the team, whether it's coming from the agent. Uh, I, I think about uh, like for instance, the reported deal that was offered to Golden State that Golden State turned down, which was Wiggins, Wiseman, the two firsts from 2021, and two future firsts for Simmons. And it's the two future firsts were the part where the Warriors said, we're out on that. And I just thought to myself, wait, who leaked that? I, I was just thinking that when you said that. I was just thinking that. Right? Oh, it's Golden State. I mean, but what's what's the messaging there? If you're Golden State, what's the leverage you're, you're pulling? You just they want-, want people to dunk on Daryl Morey publicly or have people dunk on Daryl Morey for asking for too much and drive that price down to something more reasonable. Right, right. Yeah. I get that. 
because that's that's the mo for daryl Morey, right like coach you said it is like this is how daryl Morey operates is he's going to ask for the world and then find ah kicking and screaming ah fine i'll settle for you know two first rounders instead of four right and he's not the first person to do this um but he a lot of gms seem to be leaking this right a lot of gms seem to be leaking what he's asking for or willing to talk about it with people who um have front-facing positions so i think i mean I think that's coming from Golden State somewhere leaking, you know, whether it's a game of telephone from an executive to an agent to a reporter or what have you. But I think that is a it's it's kind of like the um Danny Ainge thing, right? Is like it's become kind of a punchline so far. So when Danny Ainge is like, Yeah, we were in on LeBron James, we were in on X player, and we just we we you know, we really like this player before he went somewhere else. Like I feel like other GMs are looking at these trade proposals from Daryl Morey and saying, if we leak this publicly, Daryl is gonna have no choice but to lower his price tag, his asking number. And because no one wants to be that. No one wants to be known as that guy. Yeah, I mean, I I guess it's just uh it, it put it's gonna messed up it really puts the sixers at a huge disadvantage because you know before they could get away with quietly shopping the guy now you know oh they try to get me up out of here even if that's what you want as, as coach said maybe it is simmons that's driving they want to get out of there but I, I just don't see too many scenarios where you can walk in the training camp in about a month and a half and be like everything's cool though right like we just, you know, show up to work and pretend nothing happened. Right. Did you see the way MB greeted uh, Drummond yeah. yesterday? Yeah. That was a little bit shifty. That there's, it was. there's some culture battles that are be going on there. Yeah. There's, there's going to be some issues. And God, did you see who the Sixers just hired? Yes, Phil, uh, Phil Beckner. Phil the Drill. Who's his top client? Oh, I believe it's some kid from Weber State. So, yeah, Damian Lillard. Probably not that good of a player. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that isn't by accident, guys. That, that to me, I'm just telling you what I see. You're welcome to argue with me, of course, but I think it's Daryl saying, hey, Damian, tell, tell your GM it's time. I'm out of here. Let's go. Just hire your guy. Colleges do it all the time. And I realize Damian is no college kid. He's a grown-ass man with a whole bunch of money in the bank and a ton of leverage and power. But they just hired your guy that you were going to want to go see that you can't turn the season out because he's employed by another team. It happens to be that a team that has a player who is an all-star, who is a former all-league player that's only 25, who is a defensive specialist on a team that is bad on defense that we've all been rumoring about anyway, right, talking about. It, it, I think it's Daryl saying, okay, I'm empowering you, Mr. Lillard. Go tell your GM you're ready to pull the deal. Why else do you hire that guy? There's breaking news, guys. Messi is leaving Barcelona. Did he just sign like the crazy deal not two months ago or a month ago? It doesn't matter over there. I've already, the team we bought into a couple years ago that was in the Premier League got relegated because after a great season, our two best players held out. And of course, many of us, are, many of us NBA guys that bought into the team said, screw it, just play without him, but you can't do it. Agents control everything. And if you, if you don't acquiesce to a player's wishes, the agents of which there's just a few that control all the players will never send another player to you again. And you'll just keep getting relegated. So players have all the power with their agents. Messi does whatever he wants to do. Especially these players of that caliber, right? Yeah, that's a whole other level, right? <laughs> Thorpe, I got to ask you this. So where do you go, Tom? I don't know where he's going. I don't know anything about soccer. So I have n- the, not the slightest clue. But I wanted to ask you this. 
I apparently didn't have the slightest clue about what Steph Curry was going to do this summer because I wrote this essay for Lebitard Show about how uh, Stephen Curry, I asked a bunch of GMs whether they thought Stephen Curry is going to return, sign that $215 million max extension for over four years, which would make him the first player ever to have back-to-back $200 million plus deals. And I kind of felt like the direction that the Golden State Warriors were heading, plus the kind of whispers I was hearing in the marketplace, is that Stephen Curry might just make them wait, might hold this extension over their head and try to get them to make some deals to make them win now or have a championship contender. And within two days of that happening, Stephen Curry signs for the four-year <laughs> max extension and makes me look like a complete idiot, right? Typical. Coach. Amin El Hassan said after the Phoenix Suns went up 2-0 in the fi- in the finals that Milwaukee Bucks wouldn't win, have zero chance of winning another game for the rest of the series. And of course the Bucks win the title. My question to you coach, what is the most the loudest wrong thing you've ever said in your job as an analyst? The loudest wrong you've been on a player or a team because I was just loud wrong about the Stephen Curry extension, he just made me look like an idiot. Um, taking my lumps. I mean, took his took his uh, dunks right in Milwaukee. Coach, what is the thing that people still hit you up about on Twitter or social media or your buddies in the industry and be like, "Hey, remember that call you made about this player or that team?" What's the most loud wrong you've been? I mean, I've been doing this since '07, so I'm sure there's dozens of things I've gotten wrong. Wait, wait, since you were seven? No, since 2007. 2007. Wow. Your, your connection is terrible, Tom. Okay, okay. That, that's Smoky Mountains there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> By the way, can we, can we put in better internet in the mountains in this new infrastructure bill we're trying to get passed? Like, all a lot of people live in the mountains. Can we give them good Wi-Fi, too? It's funny, Coach. I didn't know that that satellite HughesNet Wi-Fi even was, was a real thing until Tom the other day. I thought it was just a commercial that they ran for people in Iowa or in uh, Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> no, it turns out no man right. it's real no one really reminds me much of anything which is probably pleasant uh a year ago i a year ago yeah about a year ago i said i wrote a piece saying i wouldn't take lamella ball in the first round that's a good one now i also wrote he's a potential multi-time all-star that's a better offensive version of ben simmons i mean that was in there but of course people aren't paying attention to the details my point was given the fact that he was cleaning his sneakers on defense during games and the whole thing with his dad, I, I, I am a big believer in culture. I'm a big, big believer in the Ted Lasso version of sports, right? And I don't think that situation where, where he, I thought, was playing for the brand and his father always had the potential of knocking my GM and my coach. In fact, what I said on our show is I would have a meeting with them and tell them the first time the dad calls for anything regarding our coach or our management. If I was the owner, I'm trading LaMelo the next day. We'll never think about it again. It'll be our bad. We're not going to do the same as we want, but I'm not putting up with a team that it's already hard enough to win in this league. Look at how hard Milwaukee had to go with one of the best players in the world. It took them three tries after two MVPs to finally get there, right? To have a, a breakdown because of a famous parent who's always on sports radio and sports talk on TV, and a player that I don't know, he never showed to me in Australia, he cared about winning. I saw the talent. That's pretty obvious, again, as I I wrote that. But I'm all about wanting to crush the other team and get paid because I'm crushing the other team, and I'm never going to have anyone in my camp 
publicly talk about my coach or my management. So that's why I wrote, again, two months before the draft or whatever, and I didn't have a meeting with them. It was just me standing aside. That was probably the loudest, more recent thing I've said anyway. Coach, I'm surprised that, I'm a little surprised that you would have had that stance, not because of what you saw of him as a player, but like annoying parents are a tale as old as time, right? Like, but they're never on TV. I agree with you. I mean, of course you should never worry about parents, but this guy's always on TV. And there's a reason why I think Lonzo was part of that deal initially. And I wonder why he's not in New Orleans now. I've, I've not asked uh, David that question, uh, nor anyone on that staff. Why? Did you feel like you couldn't bring Lonzo? You asked it today, I mean, on your show this morning. Like, I, 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 now, if they don't get along, I'm not aware of it. So it's fair to say I'm not aware of that. But how can you not like to play with Lonzo Ball? Right. He's a pass-first defender that's become a very good, reliable shooter, and he's a super humble guy. Like, I don't have a problem with that. So it's easy to have Lonzo. Lamelo and his dad, I, I, again, in reality, I, was I running a team, I would have had to get very comfortable with, with what's going to happen. And, and his dad did, by the way, claim that LaMelo's pissed he's coming off the bench. Very quickly after that, he started. Now, it worked out much better once he started. I don't like playing that game. I just don't like playing it. I, I think it's hard enough to win with all the egos and all the money and all the agents and everyone in these kids' ear and social media where I have to deal with a famous dad talking shit about my coach or my management. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't play that very easily. So people can criticize me all they want again. All of us live in a world, I don't think it mean, if it mean, if you asked it mean to spend about $1,000, I don't know what the number is, I mean, I know what you predicted. I listened. Uh, I actually thought the Bucs had a real good chance to win. In fact, I said on our show, Tommy may know, <laughs> I thought it was a Bucs-Raptors series in reverse. I thought the better team lost game two. Phoenix just shot out of their minds. But you would not have bet a thousand dollars. The Bucks would have won a single game. No, what I would you have really? What would you have bet? Thirty bucks, eighty bucks? It wasn't a lot of money. I probably would have put about two hundred bucks on it, and I'm gonna tell you why. For me, it came down to several factors. Number one, Milwaukee historically, not talking about in that series, historically very averse to adjustment. Right. Number two. Their best player is coming back from his knee looking like an elbow. <laughs> like, people are just forgetting that part. Yeah. That this, Like 10 days earlier, he, he had a flamingo's leg. And so no matter how surprised I was, oh, he looks better than I thought in those first two games, there was no part of me that could fathom that within the next two games, he would look like he never got hurt to begin with, which is what by game four, he looked normal. People say, oh, game four, he came down because he had the back-to-back 40s in two and three. Game four, to me, was his best game until game six. So, like, those were the two big things. And then the third thing was, like, the Suns had been consistent. They were the most consistent team in these playoffs. After game three against the Lakers, all the way through the first two games of the finals, this team played great on at home, great on the road. The role players knew their roles. Everyone was doing their thing. Chris Paul was managing everything. Devin Booker, would, you know, some nights would be efficient, sometimes he would, but he was always there. And so to me, there was no part of this that was saying, oh, yeah, the Bucs are going to make changes and Giannis is going to feel much better. And all of a sudden, these, role, these uh, role players who weren't afraid to play in L.A. at Staples against the mighty Lakers who weren't afraid to play 
at their own at altitude against the MVP, who weren't afraid to play in the conference finals when their leader was not 100%, right? Just coming off of COVID. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to clam up? Like, these were all very, very, I thought, far-fetched things. Was I going overboard by saying they wouldn't win a game? Of course. There's a little <laughs> bit of showmanship in all of this. But don't sit here and act like I'm crazy for saying that, like, the Suns were going to beat them and beat them pretty handily when that's all we'd seen up until that point. Well, defend one thing you said really strongly. Uh, I wrote about this, too. We've never seen such a dramatic change in a team than we did in literally in the middle of the playoffs. Not in the middle. When, when, when uh, Giannis and the Bucks figured out, finally, we are just going to smash teams in the paint smash them and phoenix once that happened they could never get their guard back up phoenix never recovered obviously these games were competitive games they weren't blowouts but milwaukee decided to play smash mouth ball with uh, a wing built talent wise shack and and we've never seen i, I made the i made the comment guys aiden had the whole offseason to narrow his game and had the whole offseason this is a year ago to narrow his game into being just a pure power player both those guys more or less much more power players than they had been. Remember, year one, Aiden liked to shoot threes and 18-foot jump shots. Giannis did it, like, after game three of the Nets series, which went one of eight from three, and they won an overtime. I think it was 86-83. And, and I, in fact, we wrote it. Tommy may have seen it. We wrote, we charted it, his game scores. He never played another bad game again, except for the game he got hurt in, where he didn't play, you know, a complete game. And, they, and it was the Atlanta series. Uh, that, was his, that, that was his last terrible game was the one for a game which they actually won. He changed. So, yeah, that, I didn't predict that. I thought the Bucs could win the series all time because of what I saw in the Nets series. Um, but, yeah, listen, we're all uh, – our old editor, Royce Webb, used to always say predictions are folly. Like, he always would ask me who's going to win the series, and I always had to write yeah. it and yeah. put myself up at <laughs> risk, but they're hard to do. I used to call that the gunslinger's dilemma, right? If I go in a gunfight. Now, all I have is my six-shooter. Guess what I'm shooting? My six-shooter, right? But if I go in a gunfight, but I got a six-shooter, and I got a rifle, and I got a sniper rifle, and I got a bazooka, and I got, a like, hand grenades, I have to decide, what am I using in this situation? And so for a player like Aiton, if you just say, look, all you got is this, then he gets to be pretty good at this. But Giannis, with all of his gifts, and all of the needs that the, the, the team had, there's kind of a little bit of paralysis by analysis there of what to do when. And the thing that I said earlier in the playoffs was like, he's Shaq. Play him like Shaq. Around the rim, everything around the rim, everything easy. And when it comes to end a game and it's close and you need someone to make a play, give it to Chris Middleton, right? And, and, and let him be Kobe. And it was, it's ironic because early in the playoffs, I was like, this is the team... Oh, yeah. I was like, Milwaukee's going to win the East. Milwaukee's going to win the East. And they get to the finals and two games in, and I was just like, I'm out on this because I'm just sick and tired of seeing the same shit over. When they went drop, when they went, they came out game one switched. And at halftime, their adjustment was, why don't we play drop coverage? I threw my remote control at the TV. I said, you've got to be kidding me. This is what's supposed to be, like, the, the team has been most consistent, not only in the playoffs, by the way, all year long, the Suns were consistently good. But I mean, what I'm saying, 
is how much of this is just Giannis was confident from the free throw line. If he goes 17 and 19 from the free throw line, that does two things. One, it gets points. And two, it gives him confidence of going to the rim. And fine, foul me. Fucking foul me. Good. I'm going to be Shaq. And the only thing you're going to do is is going to try to foul me. And I mean, if he goes three of 15 from the free throw line, this is a totally different story. And not that we need to revisit the finals again, but. He's never been afraid. Uh, guys, he's been fearless about it. I mean, to your point. It's one of the things I love about Giannis. He, he, unlike Ben Simmons, he doesn't care if he misses free throws. The current version of Giannis going before even game six, that to me was his superpower is, fuck it, I'm going. And if, he, if I can't miss some free throws, I'm still better than you in his mind, right? And that was a big part of who they were, I thought. That was also Shaq. Shaq's whole thing was like, I, even he, he lied. He said, I make them when they count. And he didn't. No. But the point was, I'm not afraid to get fouled and shoot free throws. I think there's something else too with me. We should be talking about going forward. That's why I bring it up now because I know it's looking back at the finals. I've always been, believed that what you went through, not just in the past, but in the very recent past, helps elevate potentially your future. I think Phoenix was not served well by playing such under undermanned teams in all three rounds, missing those players. And even though the Brooklyn Nets didn't have the full all their players, they saw the brand names of James Harden and definitely Kevin Durant. And so, and Milwaukee had the two previous years of abject, colossal failure. To your excellent discussion about weapons, uh, all Phoenix had was the six-shooter. And Milwaukee proved it because as soon as they found a way to beat you, Phoenix had nothing left. They had never been forced to get to the next level of how do you find ways. That's why Milwaukee was able to adjust on the fly, abject, colossal failure, two series in a row. And then you get by Kevin Durant. These guys all know he, he's on another planet. LeBron, all due respect, best player in the world, best player ever, whatever. Kevin Durant is proving, as we see in these Olympics, he, he's on another planet, guys. He's from another planet, as is Giannis, by the way. But to get by Kevin Durant had to give so much confidence to those guys that they like, fuck it, I got no pride. We're not winning this way. Giannis finally realized I can't win shoot threes anymore, except for on occasion. I'm just going to the rim and posting offensive rebounds, whatever. That, that comes from who they played in the past. And Phoenix was never forced to get to that amazing level because they beat anyone great before. I will subscribe to that theory. I truly believe past heartache helps you have some metal in these situations. Or not even metal, but just puts things in perspective in a way that I, I like to quote Rocky Three a lot, the part where Apollo tells Rocky, "There is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow." You, you, when you see, when you've been to the the mountaintop, almost there, and then fell at the last second, that's a feeling in the pit of your stomach that you don't forget, and I think it gives you a desperation in those moments to find ways and and to find some ingenuity. I think about that net series coach. You know what I think about? I don't think that. I don't think that like that gave him confidence. I think that was literally that was the, that's the series we lose. That's the ones that we lose right there. Because at the end of the day, you know, Harden got hurt in that series and was and was kind of a shell of himself. Kyrie got hurt, was out, and then the next series, Trey Young got hurt, even though Giannis was hurt at the same time. So they they benefited from some injury situations as well. But the reality is, the way that Nets Game Seven went, we all were like, oh, here he goes. This is how they did it again. The, the, the Bucks were playing great, and then they hit this net series, and then they went back to their old ways of giving Giannis the ball from 25 feet out, let him dribble his way into a wall, and 
is none of this works and they're not adjusting. And here's Kevin Durant. And he's hitting all these crazy shots. It was, it was written on the wall. Done. And then it didn't. And I think that I, I'm with you on that. I think that gives you a different kind of perspective. Yeah, I agree. Coach, I want to hear from you because Amin and I have talked about on Libertar, the Miami offseason where they get Kyle Lowry. They, they bring back Duncan Robinson. They sign P.J. Tucker at a low number. Um, Markeith Morris also coming to Miami. You know, this, this offseason is as much about – what the Lakers have done or remodeling that, that supporting cast Philly gets Andre Drummond and Danny Green back. Um, Brooklyn gets Patty Mills and then basically restocks with their, with their vet minimums does pretty well in their off season. But then you look at Miami and I'm wondering where you put them in your pecking order of contenders, like in the Eastern conference, do you have them higher than Brooklyn, Philly and Milwaukee, or do you put them in that second tier or third tier below them? No, I had them in the same tier, maybe not ranked quite as high. Brooklyn is just, you're just betting on whether or not they're going to stay healthy, which is not a great bet. Uh, the only, well, they also have Victor Oladipo again, right? Yeah, on a minimum. I don't like the P.J. Tucker move at all. Uh, this is a team that doesn't need his culture building and his warrior toughness. They got that plenty, right? I think anyway. Um, I think that... Uh, I think the other guys are going to help a lot. Yeah, Miami's going to be very, very good. I thought PJ was one of the worst players for the Bucks in the in the finals, especially. A guy takes a couple of shots a game. You don't, you don't got to guard him at all. Um, he's really good at fouling shooters. He likes to foul shooters every game. That always drives me crazy. <laughs> uh, and I think he'll end up not. Even, I think he'll end up not playing very well. I don't think I saw this happening. The Coach Thor PJ Tucker hate. I think is great. I love this. Yeah, I, I mean. I loved him, loved him, loved him over his career. I liked him when he left the Raptors. Like, I was high on him way back then and was so amazed he went to Israel. Like, this guy's an NBA player, I thought. But uh, I'm just saying, he, I thought he sucked for Milwaukee. And his best attribute for Milwaukee was he wasn't so bad as to drag everyone else down. He really knows how to play, right? College guys play the game, pros read the game. He's just talking about reads the game like it's the Matrix. So I'll give you that. But if you live in my family and foul a shooter, I'm making you sleep by the pool at night. Like, it is the most <laughs> egregious mistake you could possibly make. And he does it three times a game. In the NBA finals, he did it every game. It drove me just nuts. But I like their other guys. And bringing Duncan back and the way they use Duncan, what, a, what an amazing story that is for the Heat franchise. No one else would do that. They would let the guy stand in the corner, maybe, if he ever got on the court. They featured him. They, they do feature him. And it makes everyone better because the way I, we actually work on Duncan Robinson shots now. No one really had done all those pin downs and uh, runs, a, a, a long runs off staggered screens and then shoot from 28 feet. No one was doing that except for the occasional elite superstar. Uh, and then Bellinelli, there's like three dudes, Kyle Corver, Bellinelli, uh, those, you know, just a few. This guy uh, changed things. So I love what Miami's done. I think they're going to be terrific. Uh, there's Sir Bam Adebayo has not been good offensively in these in this Olympics. He's a concern to play with Jimmy Butler a lot. Uh, you've got to have shooters around him. Uh, but nonetheless, I think they have a lot of moving pieces and they can beat you in a lot of ways. They don't just have a six shooter. I just uh, I just question that one thing. Coach, where can people find your work? Truehoop.com and on your Twitter and socials. Uh, please give them that info, please. Yeah, at Coach Thorpe. If you like political posts, I do political stuff on Facebook. So I'm at David B. Thorpe. Uh, and if you want to read about a sappy old man who writes about his wife and kids some. But uh, yeah, at Coach Thorpe on Twitter. And I think Coach, 
Coach David on Instagram, but I don't do anything interesting on Instagram. And yeah, True Hoop obviously is where I'm a partner with them, and we're we're doing a lot of really cool stuff, and we're gonna we're not gonna stop. Uh, we got our podcast twice a week. I'm bringing it in uh, Mondays and Fridays typically, but we post we do a live and then we post it. Uh, Henry really attacks things that no one's writing about, and. I'm just another guy writing about what's going on in the court and trying to figure out what's going to happen next. No one covers the league like Henry Abbott and David Thorpe do. Like they, they absolutely, and I was, I was happy to write for them a few months ago. Always a joy to do a pod with you and get on with you, coach. And uh, thanks so much. I have a lot we could get into on uh, Russell Westbrook and stuff, but uh, we've run out of time here and I'm in the Smokies. So thank you for carrying me. I feel like I was PJ Tucker and you guys were Giannis and Drew Holiday on this pod. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> 